Welcome to Episode 90 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by uh, guest commentator Charlie Savage, a New York Times reporter and the author of Power Wars, uh, um, Inside Obama's Post-9-11 Presidency. Uh, Charlie, welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. Uh, and it's a terrific book. Um, we'll get back to it uh, uh, in a bit, but it is the definitive story of the fights over um, intelligence and the war on terrorism and law in really two administrations now. It's, uh, it, it, it's a fascinating story and uh, makes you fully qualified to uh, participate in all of our uh, uh, news roundups. So we well, hope you will. Thank you. As a fake lawyer, I'm glad to be here. I, you're really uh, you're, you're, uh, heir to Ben Wittes's chair as uh, the best non-lawyer writing about law, uh, especially in this area. Um, he's uh, He should be hearing footsteps. Ah, well, thank you. Uh, okay, uh, we're also joined by Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a lawyer in uh, uh, Steptoe's New York office. Uh, welcome, Michael. Hey, good to be here. And I guess if, if Charlie's a fake lawyer, that makes us fake journalists. <laughs> I, I, I'll take that. <laughs> I think a lot of people would be glad to say, say that. Uh, and uh, uh, the uh, guy who liked that uh, best was Jason Weinstein, uh, formerly with the Justice Department, uh, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. Uh, welcome, Jason. Thank you. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, a record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer and an aspiring fake journalist. I think that uh, should go into my standard uh, introduction. Uh, well, let's get started. Uh, it was a bad, bad week for the FTC and for Tversa at the hands of LabMD, who uh, frankly has persevered through uh, endless abuse and mockery uh, uh, and uh, complete bankruptcy for the business uh, um, to win a, a remarkable victory. Uh, Michael, what uh, exactly happened? Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, LabMD spent a lot of time, a lot of uh, money on legal fees trying to avoid the FTC's administrative process uh, where the FTC's enforcement action was first brought. It, you know, it went to federal court, it went to the 11th Circuit, it asked the commissioners themselves to intercede, uh, all to no avail. And then, at the end of the day, that very administrative process that it tried to avoid ends up with a resounding victory for the company itself. The, uh, the administrative law judge that, that heard the case issued a, a just a stinging 95-page opinion trashing the enforcement staff of the ALJ's own agency for bringing a case that was founded on manufactured evidence. Not that the FTC manufactured the evidence, but a private company, Tversa, which was in the business of finding data breaches and then trying to pressure the company with the breach to hire it, Tversa, to fix the breaches, basically cooked up evidence that's, that tried to uh, convince the company that its its personal information was all over the internet. When so the, in fact, the, the it wasn't if, at all. If, if I remember right, the uh, um, 
the charge was that an employee at LabMD had installed one of these Napster clones uh, on a work computer so that they could share 60s uh, rock and roll. Uh, and instead, they ended up sharing all of the files of the company uh, to Versa was apparently in the business of wandering through these uh, um, file sharing uh, uh, systems looking for embarrassing um, files that had been put uh, made available on the Internet, including personal data. And then when they found it, they would go to the company and say, by the way, your really embarrassing files are on the Internet. Uh, you should hire us to uh, help you uh, clean up. Uh, I, and... That has a kind of – there's a slightly uh, um, unsavory air to that uh, uh, exchange, but it's not illegal. But what the ALJ said, and here he's uh, really channeling what the uh, uh, House of uh, Representatives investigators found, uh, uh, what he said was, uh, you have uh, – uh, uh, sorry, uh, Traversa went out and – told reporters, investigators, the FTC about people who didn't hire it uh, to clean up their files. So they were really uh, punishing people who didn't hire them. Uh, is that is that uh, the way that played out? That's the way it played out, but, but uh, Traverso went one step farther here. Uh, it didn't just uh, take those steps to try to pressure LabMD to hire it. It actually... Uh, invented evidence, it, it concocted evidence that's purported to show that the personal data from LabMD's computer was found on various, uh, at various IP addresses, including ones affiliated with identity thieves, which was completely not true. Yeah. The only place yeah. that the personal data was found was on LabMD's computer. So at the end of the day, it did, LabMD did have LimeWire, a, a peer-to-peer sharing uh, software, on its computer, which made the personal data susceptible to being available to, to identity thieves, but it was not found anywhere, uh, you know, in the possession of identity thieves. And, and that's where Traversa really crossed a line from being unsavory into uh, being completely dishonest and, and misleading. Yeah, it, 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 I, it sounds quite bad. And I think most of this emerged after uh, Daryl Issa's investigative uh, uh, committee dug into it. They wrote a report that uh, lays out a lot of this, maybe not all of it. Uh, uh, and I guess uh, my question is, why didn't the FTC, after that uh, decision, after, after it read that report, admit that uh, it didn't have much of a case. Uh, they had no evidence that anybody's files had actually been misused uh, by any actual identity thief or anybody else. And they continued to argue in front of the ALJ, well, it's still likely that there will be some harm, even though it was years after the alleged exposure. That's the $64,000 question, or, or however much it was that uh, uh, the CEO of LabMD spent on uh, defending himself. Um, you know, they, they, the FTC stopped relying on Tyversa uh, testimony as part of its case, but it continued to rely on expert opinions, two expert opinions in particular, uh, about the likelihood of harm which were themselves founded on Tyversa's evidence. So, again, that, that manufactured evidence was at the base of the FTC's whole case. 
And they're still relying on it to this day, at least if they go forward with an appeal to the commissioners, as as most people speculate they will. Uh, you know, their case about the likelihood of harm is still, uh, in essence, based on the Traversa uh, manufactured evidence. So, you know, there were there were also some indication that uh, journalists got the same treatment that they that Traversa would go to them and say, "Look at this, and look at this, and look at this. Don't you want to write a story?" And then they get ready to to ask the people that uh, were covered in the story to to hire them. Uh, and and that makes me think that in a very real way, the FTC's business model is not unlike journalists. Uh, they can't do everything, so they look for an appealing story, and if you bring them an appealing story, they're inclined just to scarf it up and uh, use it. Uh, uh, and I, I wonder if uh, this is just a sign they're, they're so overwhelmed, they, they can only take kind of uh, the easiest of cases uh, that are more or less presented to them, and that puts them at risk of, of guys who are serving them up the uh, stuff that's just not quite true you know i think i think you're right and in in there's an analog in in what we tell clients who come to us who've been hacked and we say look the, the easier you can make this for law enforcement to pursue the better chance you have that they'll follow up because they're overburdened um they like statistics showing their success so if you can give them a, a gift wrap box full of evidence that you know you have a better chance of getting their assistance um but where the FTC went wrong is in, you know, not examining the evidence more carefully, and even worse, when it was presented to them by a whistleblower at Tiversa that this stuff was was not reliable, they still went forward, um, and and that's the part that to me is just mind mind boggling. And I, they've got a real interesting decision at the commission now whether to uh, take the appeal to the commissioners because. They don't want to let stand the ALJ's decision, which which seemed to say that you don't have to have concrete harm, but if you don't have existing concrete harm, you got to have something pretty close to it, or, or you know, imminent harm, which makes this more like you know what's going on in the in the civil suits in the courts that you've got to have uh, a showing of at least some sort of imminent concrete harm um, in order to to make out a, a civil damages claim. Um, so they don't want that to stand, but at the same time, the farther they go with this case, the more embarrassing it's going to be for the for the agency as a whole, in my view. So here's my theory. Uh, the entire FTC was suffering from Daryl Issa derangement syndrome. If Daryl Issa said it was true, the FTC's staff and uh, uh, chairmanship uh, were totally disinclined to believe it uh, uh, and rather wanted to dismiss it as a, a partisan hack job. Uh, uh, and that may have been what got them into this trouble. Well, I don't know if that's true. I do think that's a good way to go through life. But, um, <laughs> but in this case, I think that they were victims of their own success. You know, as you know, prior to LabMD there were, and Wyndham, there were 50 or 51 straight cases in which the companies just rolled over and paid money, yeah. whether they thought they were actually responsible or not. Uh, you know, in many cases, just as a business judgment, because they didn't have the resources or the the will to engage in the effort that LabMD has been going through. So I, I think that that made them sloppy yes. and made them exercise incredibly bad judgment in, in pursuing this case. Yeah, it's a, it was it, it was another scalp. Looked like it was just going to go up on the wall, and uh, I, and it wasn't it, it wasn't rational for uh, uh, Darty, the, the, the head of LabMD, to pursue this. He just uh, has developed a. Uh, uh, an E-Day fixe about this, yeah. and it turns out uh, he had some reason for it. All right, uh, so Jason, um, you uh, uh, 
Uh, you may have seen there was a story that the EU has responded to the Paris attacks by uh, uh, deciding they're going to regulate Bitcoin. Is, is, is that a fair uh, assessment of what the EU announced? It's a fair assessment of what the headlines said the EU okay. announced, but that's not actually what they did. Uh, th- this was definitely more hype than substance. The, the headlines last week proclaimed that the European Commission and the G7 were preparing to crack down on Bitcoin. I think actually crack down was, was in the Reuters headline. Um, uh, in the wake of the Paris attacks. And notwithstanding the fact that there's no evidence that digital currencies were in any way used uh, in connection with the attacks, and the U.K. Treasury just a, a week or so ago issued a, a risk assessment in which it found that other forms of money transmitter, money transmission, including traditional banks, uh, use of money services businesses, even abuse of donations to charitable organizations, present a greater risk uh, when it comes to money laundering and terrorist financing than uh, digital currencies do. But putting that aside, the meeting that the headlines were talking about wasn't a crackdown at all. Um, and when you drill down, and kudos to Jerry Brito and a group called Coin Center for being the first to point this out, um, all they were doing was discussing um, uh, whether it was appropriate to propose measures to strengthen AML and know your customer rules when it comes to non-traditional forms of payment, not just digital currencies, but also transfer precious metals, mm-hmm. use of prepaid cards, um, all of which are, are less regulated than traditional banks. And so there was a, a, a discussion about whether there should be tighter uh, AML, KYC measures for those non-traditional payments. The meeting also was focused on a whole bunch of stuff that had nothing to do with Bitcoin or digital currencies, uh, security-related issues, PNR, your favorite topic, uh, yeah. um, external border control, firearms laws, my favorite topic, um, information sharing between the member states, and, and an array of terrorist financing issues that had nothing to do with Bitcoin. So I think the... There, there, this is not a, a one-time thing. There, there is a, a history of headlines about Bitcoin that are the, the more hype than, than reality. Well, they've got, they've got the story written. It's, they've got the narrative, and they like to fit new stuff into an old narrative. So right. the narrative is, oh, my God, uh, terrorists and, and criminals are using Bitcoin, and the governments are going to crack down on them. It's sort of like uh, the government wants to regulate encryption, so when there's a terrorist attack, uh, everybody rolls into battle stations and starts fighting over encryption before they know whether it was used. Well, we'll talk about that more in a few minutes, but the same thing is happening in, in the terms of the going dark debate yeah. in the wake of the attacks. All right. Uh, well, uh, new developments in diplomacy. This is this is. Uh, Rare, and uh, I ought to uh, uh, give credit to the G20. The G20, uh, the entire G20 adopted language saying that uh, we affirm that no country should conduct or support uh, 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 communications technology-enabled theft of intellectual property, including trade secrets or other confidential business information, with the intent of providing competitive advantages to companies or commercial sectors. So this means that uh, the concession or the uh, rough agreement that uh, President Obama and President Xi reached, which was picked up by uh, uh, Xi in Xi's meetings with the Germans, with the uh, Brits, has now been picked up by the entire G20. I think we've got an emerging consensus that this is a bad thing. Um, uh, G20 includes uh, Russia and China, the principal uh, uh, conductors of those uh, uh, kinds of tech, uh, of espionage. So um, it reflects um, either their retreat from defending this uh, or uh, uh, a sense that the, they can manage not to get caught doing it. Uh, uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a good thing for people to be saying because it means that if we catch them, we'll be able to take tougher action, uh, uh, knowing that they won't just say, well, sure, we do it. What are you going to do about it? Right. But, you know, it's just words on a page. It is just, you know, I, I, 
usually that's my line. Uh, but in this case, it seems to me these are words that open the door to sanctions. That is to say, we can now sanction companies that we find benefiting from stolen IP, even if it was stolen by the PLA. We can sanction the companies and say, well, it looks like it might have been stolen by the PLA, but that couldn't be government policy, so we're going to impose the sanctions. And the Chinese government can't really object uh, except on sort of case-specific grounds. No, I think that's right. And and what I mean is, you know, obviously there there are worse words you could see on a page, but they will only be words until they're enforced. And I, I agree with you that all things being equal, it creates a path to enforcement. But until countries demonstrate, including this one, that we have the will to actually go after a company in China or elsewhere that actually benefits from cyber espionage through sanctions or other means, um, they will remain words on a page. Yeah. All right, and uh, speaking of words on a page, uh, it looks as though Judge Leon's words on a page saying how uh, evil and unconstitutional the NSA made a data program uh, was won't be the last words put on a page about that uh, topic because uh, in granting an emergency stay to his uh, uh, preliminary injunction, Judge Kavanaugh wrote separately to say, I don't uh, agree at all with uh, Judge Leon. He managed to do it without any of Judge Leon's trademark uh, uh, exclamation points. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, anything notable in Judge Kavanaugh's opinion? No, no, nothing. Nothing surprising. Uh, he, he, uh, Kavanaugh just said, you know, the third-party doctrine means that there's no search because there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in uh, data that you turn over to a third party here, the telecom uh, provider. And also that even if there was a search, it was reasonable here. Um, uh, the interesting question to me is whether uh, there's going to be litigation now over whether to vacate Judge Leon's opinion below, because it's not automatic that his, uh, his decision is going to be vacated. Um, and it could be vacated as moot because the uh, case will be over, right? It, it could be moot, but there's a you know there's a whole uh, confusing jurisprudence about. Uh, when moot decisions get vacated or not. And if it's because of the, you know, one, if it's one party's fault that it's, that it's mooted, then it might not be, uh, uh, something that should be vacated. Um, but I, I think there will be litigation over that because, you know, uh, Clayman's gonna want the decision to, to stay on the books. Yes. For whatever, whatever purpose. I, I, now I, I think this suggests that there might have been a, uh, um, strategic error in, taking this up, because now as it becomes a mood, it's going to be in the hands of the D.C. Circuit, which will then be asked to vacate the decision below as moot, whereas if it had been still in Judge Leon's hands, the question of vacating it would have gone to Judge Leon in the first instance, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how that works. I'm not sure if the, the government really had much of a, uh, a choice in, in bringing it up to the D.C. Circuit for, um, for the stay. Which you know, which put it in their laps. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, as I said, the Paris attacks have uh, thrown the uh, encryption debate wide open again, despite the fact that there isn't really any evidence of uh, sophisticated encryption in that attack, at least. Uh, um, and I, I, frankly, I have to say this 
uh, debate doesn't seem at all new. It feels warmed over, uh, and I suppose from Jim Comey's point of view, warming it over is a is a good thing uh, uh, because it was getting stone cold uh, um, after the uh, Obama administration decided not to push for legislation. Um, I don't know, do you, Jason, Michael, do you see anything uh, new in this debate? I I don't see anything new in it. You know, the, it is interesting the things that that Jason recounted earlier about you know how quick Europeans are now to start revisiting some of the limitations they put on surveillance. Um, you know, could could also spread to encryption, and it would be pretty interesting if uh, we see that the Europeans take the lead on uh, limiting uh, the use or, or spread of, of strong encryption. Wouldn't surprise me. You know, France has had some vestigial controls on encryption uh, since the 40s and the 50s, uh, uh, so they've never quite bought into the uh, uh, the notion that it's uncontrollable. Uh, and so I wouldn't be surprised if they toy with this idea. Uh, Germans, it'll be a long time before they got on board. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, but, you know, let's see where the next next event is, um, because this issue, like so many others, uh, seems to just um, be driven by events. Yep. OK, uh, so let's um, I guess I, I, I should uh, spend just a moment uh, on uh, Glenn Greenwald, who rushed into print to say, you know, this says nothing bad about Edward Snowden, uh, the fact that ISIS has uh, uh, carried out this attack. It's no big deal. Uh, uh, he, he, he taught ISIS nothing. Uh, and about the same time, uh, an ISIS manual, um, they have um, apparently a, a user help desk at ISIS for uh, jihadis who are trying to figure out how to use uh, all of the uh, apps that uh, and the encryption that ISIS has put out. Uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of think, I can imagine people sitting at the help desk saying, oh, God, I want to kill myself, uh, to which, the, you know, the jihadis say, yeah, that was the point. Um, eh, but they put out a manual saying, uh, here are the good uh, c- computer programs to use, here are the bad ones. Uh, and at, at, at at least one point in that, they say, use this one. I was going to say, don't use this one because Edward Snowden says it's not safe. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, Glenn Greenwald uh, got, what, uh, four days out of his uh, his story. Charlie? I, well, I just would jump in on that. <clears throat> if we're talking about the same manual, it's my understanding, at least, that's not really an ISIS manual. It was ah. produced about a year ago by a Kuwaiti firm for use of by journalists and political activists in Gaza. I had And okay. uh, ISIS may have picked it up and distributed it as well. And apparently, yes, somewhere in there it says Dropbox is not secure because right. it's not. And it, it attaches that idea to Snowden. And they, big uh, deal, whatever. I, I, yes, uh, if if Greenwald hadn't made the utterly implausible claim that Snowden did nothing to yeah. contribute to ISIS's security, uh, uh, this would be a less interesting story. But uh, I'm not sure of the fact that ISIS borrowed somebody else's stuff and endorsed it means it's not ISIS's product too. But I, I I'll, I'll grant you that uh, the drafting of it doesn't seem to have been ISIS's. Okay, uh, so that was Charlie uh, uh, jumping in, and we're here to talk about his book, which is really uh, a monumental review of all of the 
the legal issues arising out of the war on terrorism since uh, uh, 9-11 uh, with a focus on uh, the Obama administration. Uh, you'd written another book uh, on the uh, uh, the Bush administration's uh, uh, approach, and there was a lot that wasn't known then that you kind of go back and pick up. But uh, That's right. I'm sure there's a lot not known about Obama now that, you know, 10 years from now, I'm like, oh... Yeah, Why like, wasn't that in my monumental book? So it's it's the it's it's the second draft for history. There you it's, go. Uh, it, it's clearly not the last word, but it is a uh, uh, even for those of us who followed it, maybe especially for those of us who followed it, it is a eye-opening tour of stuff that dribbled out and that we kind of half understood and wondered about the connections uh, among. I uh, and it, it, in a very nice way. One reason it's so long is you actually take people by the hand. You don't have to know everything about this. You walk them through how the law got to where it was, why everybody uh, bureaucratically and legally ended up in the position that they did. Uh, um, so uh, I, I do have criticisms. I can't believe I'm little. shocked. I'm well, shocked to hear that yeah, story. Well, I've known you, know, you so long, and you always are just so nice and friendly and upbeat about everybody. Uh, well, I, you know, I, it, if, if you don't let your bias show, you'll, uh, you'll do much better on this show. Uh, <laughs> and on the whole, I will, I will say for a New York Times reporter, this is a very straight uh, uh, rendition of the uh, interesting uh, the, qualifier there. Yeah, yeah we did that. A little shade thrown my way. Well, look, I, <laughs> your two bo- your book about Bush hmm. was why the Bush administration disappointed the left. And your book about Obama is why the Obama administration disappointed the left. I'm I'm thinking that there's a certain personal element of disappointment at work. My, there. my book about Bush was about why the Bush administration came in and wanted to expand executive power as an into itself, uh, you know, an, an agenda that was idiosyncratic to Dick Cheney's history in the 70s. Right. And I think that that's not just about disappointing the left or the right. I mean, the book was heartily blurred by such left-wing liberals as George Will, you know, it, Richard it, Epstein. It, and and I, I will say it's not it, – it, and I would heartily blurb it too because um, – the you know to the extent that that your leanings show they are well disciplined, uh, which is not always true in the New York Times. <laughs> I, I, and uh, uh, but I I I I think I can infer your um, view of both the Obama and the Bush administrations. Uh, you know, frankly, from the that basic question, you know, why did they do this? Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, but that's you know, your 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 critique of the uh, Obama administration is that they kind of ran on this ambiguous, uh, uh, I can't believe those yahoos are violating the law in every respect, paying no attention to law uh, as they fight this war on terrorism, uh, 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 trampling on rights, and we're going to fix it. And exactly what they were going to fix, they left a little vague. Um, and... Ironically, while they were running, uh, uh, while that campaign was going, uh, the same forces that pushed them in that direction also were pushing the Bush administration into fixing many of the legal problems that they, uh, uh, or lack of law that uh, um, everyone was complaining about. So when Obama arrives, he um, 
he didn't have as many legal problems to fix. And so the question then is, are you going to just fix legal problems or are you going to change the civil liberties impact of the policies that were implemented in 2001? I think that's right. I mean, so this book doesn't, one of the reasons it's so long is it's two or three books pushed together. Um, it was an uncabined ambition and, uh, so it goes. But a lot of it is, is, you know, micro or, you know, this, episode where this thing happens in the world and it's a dilemma and here's the people arguing with it and here's how the law shaped their response. A lot of it is purely um, uh, explanatory. Mm-hmm. and so, so some of it is behind the scenes, fly on the wall. Some of it is explanatory. It's in, you say I, I walk people through just sort of what are the things you need to know about surveillance or about detention or interrogation to be an educated person in this era. But then I do have these big picture themes, and you've and you've hit on the, one of them that's as an attempt to sort of make sense of the larger whole, which is why having run on a campaign of change from George W. Bush's global war on terror, was has there been so much continuity in policy outcomes uh, by this administration, and in terms of using military commissions and drone strikes and having a warrantless surveillance program and. Although they want to close Gitmo, accepting as legitimate indefinite law of war detention and so forth. And you're right, part of the explanation is sort of bewildering, right? This is not who people thought were better or worse, depending on your point of view, they were electing. Uh, and, or at least some people. And when you, so you have the ACLU saying you're acting like Bush, or you have Bush veterans saying you have vindicated us and retroactively revealed the criticisms of us as having just been partisan, you know, opportunism. Uh, so one of the frames for at least understanding that disconnect is recognizing that there was a civil liberties critique of Bush and there was a rule of law critique of Bush. And often those were entangled. They were both pushing in the same direction. Um, but you can fix a rule of law critique. Congress can pass a Military Commissions Act or a FISA Amendments Act, yep. and then the rule of law problem is solved. And if, if your perspective on what was problematic about that policy was the state should ha- not have this power versus the individual – the only way to fix that is to turn it off. And you, you can go back and parse um, some of Obama's speeches, and you can look at as a senator and look at what the people who became his administration were saying when they were the ones uh, at, at the panel discussions and so forth critiquing Bush and see that overwhelmingly they were the ones making the rule of raw critique and letting other people make the civil liberties critique. And one of the early stories I tell, go ahead. So let me, let me offer a, a, a thought on that. People run for office uh, with an entire set of characters behind them, and they install people at the Justice Department who are at the Justice Department but two levels down uh, when they get into office. And the the people who came in with Obama necessarily, if they had any um, real expertise, were – People who'd been in the Clinton Justice Department and some of the other Clinton uh, uh, national security agencies, Absolutely. and and so and the fight in the Obama in the Clinton administration was a sort of Justice Department view that law and prosecutors could do everything in the fight on terrorism or a lot more, and that if you put all of this into a legal context, uh, it would work fine, and. That was rejected by the Bushies uh, in 2001. But what people were fighting to do was to go back to the days when the Justice Department played a much bigger role and prosecutions played a much bigger role in uh, fighting terrorism than they did after 9-11. Well, I think 
I mean, I don't. Th- I think that's a narrower way to put it than I would. I think that they wanted to. They, what they thought was this was war. They weren't repudiating the idea that this was an armed, con- an actual, for real, honest to goodness, armed conflict, which some on the left right. wanted repudiated. Uh, but they thought that it could be fought within a conventional framework right. of law, and that doesn't necessarily mean, you, you know, oh, Justice Department can do it all because they're not repudiating the ability to do targeted killings. They're right. not repudiating law of war detention when necessary, although clearly they want to use it as sort of a last resort rather than a first resort. Um, but, you know, also a lot of those people that are pushing into the second tier and third tier around the agencies in policy-making roles, even the first tier around agencies, I mean, this is something that's so striking about this administration, are lawyers. Right? Yeah. I mean, you're a lawyer, right? And you were in a policy-making role at DHS. As Mary DeRosa has suggested, a self-loathing. A self-loathing a lawyer, lawyer, right? <laughs> so you're, you're, you know, you would have been more at home in this administration in that sense than in the Bush administration, because there weren't a lot of you. And yeah. Bush and Cheney were not lawyers. Obama's a lawyer, Biden's a lawyer. You know, at the State Department, Hillary Clinton and, and, and John Kerry are lawyers, unlike Condi Rice and Colin Powell, yep. unlike Bush and Cheney. And that pattern replicates all through the policymaking roles. This is the most lawyerly administration ever, following maybe the least lawyerly administration ever. And that's what's so fascinating about the fact that, in many ways, they've ended up sort of coalescing around uh, a common set of policies with a few very striking exceptions. So um, one other thing. Theme, and then I want to jump into some of the uh, actual uh, uh, intercept uh, issues that uh, came up. Uh, you make the argument, which I, I completely uh, agree because I watched this pretty closely, that the Abdul Muttalib uh, uh, underpants bombing. Christmas 09. Uh, Christmas of uh, 09 uh, was absolutely crucial in resolving what had been kind of a scrum over exactly what we're doing on uh, uh, terrorism, uh, uh, crisply in favor of we are fighting with all the tools that we were given, but we're going to make them legal, uh, um, as opposed to uh, perhaps doing more of a civil liberties critique of uh, uh, the past tools. So the, the book opens with a chapter that is it telescopes out uh, the single day, or really just 12 hours of Christmas 09, from the moment when Abdul Muttalib goes to the bathroom of the plane heading into Detroit, prepares to kill himself and everyone else on that plane, to the point where the FBI reads him the Miranda warning when he emerges from surgery uh, at in Ann Arbor, which of course becomes this huge flashpoint right. uh, and a totally um, you know disingenuous one, actually, as the book sort of lays out. Um, and then it tell, goes into these big picture themes, some of which we've already been talking. And then the third chapter is the, the six weeks that follows the underwear bombing, which is really like that's where things I call it things fall apart. That's where the worst month of the Obama presidency. Um, it's when the attempt to close Guantanamo really goes off the rails, where Miranda rights becomes an issue. Scott Brown, Republican, wins the Ted Kennedy. And seat. that was interesting. I always thought he won that over uh, was, Obamacare, but you're saying that uh, everybody who was a insider thought he won it on national security. That, that's right. I mean, nationally, it was sort of Obamacare was the conversation, and so people, oh, that must be a rejection of Obamacare. Of course, they had Romney care in Massachusetts. They didn't really care. The internal polling of the Brown campaign showed that more than any other issue it was his blasting of Obama and Martha Coakley for using criminal law enforcement procedures for handling terrorists between the FBI's uh, charging and of so forth of Abdul Muttalib, and also that's when the KSM trial decision really uh, melts down. 
uh, that's the thing that really separated him in Massachusetts voters. And, and I, I, you know, I, 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 I know that the administration thought that they were treated unfairly on the, uh, uh, the Miranda warnings, and maybe they were. Uh, but what, if you're, if you have any brains as a, uh, politician, and certainly Emmanuel did, uh, um, you realize Whatever we think about ourselves, we're pretty tough. Uh, uh, the rest of the country doesn't think our heart is in this fight over terrorism. They, they think that uh, we're too legalistic. Uh, and so anytime it, that criticism is raised, we're at risk. And that realization uh, probably drove their sense that they didn't have as much leeway as they had thought to uh, to make changes in these programs. Well, I think it is a two part. One is uh, you know the the high version is it's on our watch. It's on us if in fact the defenses right. fail and 300 people die and that's not, you know, you right. don't want that. That sobers everybody. Up. Right. And then you have the politics of it and losing the Ted Kennedy seat and uh even Democrats in New York not wanting the KSM trial anymore. And I think the the recognition comes from that that ha- if there is another attack and it succeeds uh, this will totally turn everything around. Right. Obama had just won this historic victory. Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate. Now they had 59. That's a big, that's a big one to lose. And the notion is he'll go from that to the failed one-term president. Everything they're trying to do, not just getting away from ground wars in the Middle East and no more torture, but expanding health insurance, totally unrelated policies will all be reversed and collapse and fail. They've really, and so the, it leads to a hardening. And part of that is, you know, this the recognition that political people start showing up in the Terror Tuesday briefings because they recognize it now as a political issue. And I, I quote people like Eric Holder saying to their own people, you know, probably the most liberal member of the Amala cabinet, you know, things have changed. We have to rethink all this stuff going forward. So I, and I, it, the one thing you don't talk about is Rahm Emanuel. I suspect he's he's a big player in all this, and that we just don't yet have his story. Uh, uh, but let, let's go into um, how this affected the uh, various intercept programs. And for this, you really now, for the first time, can go back and and uh, as you do, lay out the history of those programs. And they're all pretty. It, it, what's interesting is. Most of this stuff that we've been fighting over now and are still fighting over uh, came about in about two months after September 11. Uh, and it was called Stellar Wind, but it had three big programs. Baskets, it, had, it, yes. it, it had what has become the 702 program, uh, growing out of uh, transiting uh, uh, communications intercepts, uh, basically looking at stuff that touches the United States but doesn't touch Americans. Um, and that's actually... Well, that's in, transit. That's not 702. 702 is focused, again, on communications that are outside the United States. Uh, um, you're targeting non-Americans. Uh, so, again, the, the idea was we're interested in what's happening abroad, and the fact that it's touching the United States should be more of a technicality, and so we should just go after and get it, as I understand it. Well, I mean, okay. as the former general counsel of the NSA, far be it from me to, to, to put a different spin on that, I would say that's the story. So let's pull out for a second. Okay. Yes, for the first time now, thanks to Edward Snowden and the declassifications and the FOIA lawsuits and all that followed uh, his uh, disclosures, it's possible for people on the outside, unlike you, 
who are on the inside, to understand what's been happening with surveillance law and technology going back 30 years, sort of what happened after FISA. It didn't end with FISA. And um, so although this book is mainly focused on Obama, I have one chapter where I try to go back and piece together everything that we've seen come out and mosaic it together. And that's really critical. I mean, because yes. uh, we, we, we've all heard about the, the, the hospital room drama, and nobody knew what that was about. And, and you managed, I think, to, uh, to write a very persuasive explanation that fit that into all the other things that were happening. That's right. So, so part of the, but part of it goes way before even Bush in 9-11. So, you know, understanding now how the arrival of fiber optics in the 80s led to the modern working relationship between the NSA and telecoms, who had to now get into, to, so, to, uh, on U.S. soil to the telecoms facilities, AT&T and others, to get what you were talking about before, transiting foreign-to-foreign communications that FISA didn't apply to and the Fourth Amendment didn't apply to, but it required a partnership, a voluntary cooperation with the phone companies to get let the NSA get into that stuff. And then that arrangement breaks down in the 90s with the arrival of the Internet and webmail and puts greater and greater pressure on a system to... Uh, where the NSA wants to get into streams that have one end on domestic soil. Mm-hmm. Even if they're only targeting the foreigner, the foreigner might be sending or receiving communications from an American. And that's the, that becomes then, after the explosion of 9-11 and, and the creation of Stellar Wind, that becomes the content basket where Bush permits the NSA to start collecting without a warrant uh, one in foreign, one in domestic communications. And what you can, when you look at Stellar Wind, Step back a bit. What Stellar Wind had was uh, it, it said we've already been collecting transiting communications because we don't think that Americans are involved. Uh, we should be able to go after one end in the U.S. communications in three different ways. One, if we know somebody that we're targeting uh, and he happens to send a communication to or get one from the United States, we should know it. Uh, and second, um, if somebody has a phone call to a terrorist uh, number, we should be from the United States. We should know that immediately, and that led to the metadata program. Uh, uh, and then, if they have email communications, uh, we ought to know that, and that led to the email metadata program, that in many ways is as important as um, the other two programs, but which is dead now, and therefore. Um, doesn't get the same attention. Uh, or was dead before it all came to light. That's yes, right. that's right. Or so, dead, quote-unquote. Right. There's the, the, some issue about exactly uh, uh, how it died, why it died. Uh, but the, the key in all of this was a, a sudden focus and a determination. We're going to we can no longer ignore the fact that terrorists are sometimes in the United States doing things that are very dangerous and communicating about them outside. So we're going to go out and get those communications. And we're not going to use FISA because FISA doesn't work, uh, was the, the presumption. A lot of reasons why they might have thought FISA didn't work, but it probably didn't work, probably could not have justified any of these things. And, anyway. and, and. Mm-hmm. The Bush, I mean, this is the crucial thing, right? The original sin, as I put it. Right? We're not going to go to Congress to get them to change FISA and make the argument that it no longer works. We're going just to just, we're just going to blow through it under it's, it's, a secret commander war. in chief. That's right. This is war. I'm the commander in chief. We always intercept the communications of the enemy in a war, uh, and nobody has thought we needed a warrant before, and by God, we don't need it now. The, the problem, yeah. you know, the problem is that the, the FISA. Statute. says 
there are no exceptions. You must get a warrant. And, uh, and I think we can see in hindsight now, I mean, the, all of the fascinating fights that are, you know, some of which we knew about more or less in real time, many of which we only know about now. You mentioned the, the, the famous Ashcroft Hospital episode and then the, the contortions that the FISA court went through in 04 and 06 and 07 to sort of reinterpret words in non-obvious ways. Uh, and even the continuing fights over the FISA Amendments Act and, and the Patriot Act and the USA Freedom Act now, all of this is uh, a continuing effort by judges, by Congress, by executive branch officials to save this program right. or its modern, you know, descendant from the original sin of the fact that it violated statute to be put in place. And, it, and it, it's a great demonstration of how in the counterterrorism world, once a tool is in place, whether or not it's been shown to actually do anything uh, in different parts of this program were more effective than others, it's exceedingly hard for anyone in a position of a responsibility or authority to be the person who removes it because the blood will be on your hands is such a powerful counterargument uh, that people just bend over backwards to so I, not you, be that person. You, you, you call it original sin, and I, that's, I, 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 I disagree with that. I, there's no doubt that it was inconsistent with FISA. And, uh, uh, and I question whether you could have walked into Congress and said, I've got an idea, change the law. Uh, because going after one end in the United States communications, that's what every, when everybody talks about, oh, you know, NSA was violating the law in the 70s, it was mostly because they decided to go after one end communications in the United States. Uh, they did some targeting, you know, they did Jane Fonda when she was in North Vietnam. I, I'm not sure today that you would say if you're, that, you're, that you can't target an American who's in Raqqa. Um, it, well, so, you would need under FISA Amendments Act a court order to yes, do that. Uh, yes, that's probably right. Uh, uh, but, but that's, that, that's the point that, uh, um, it, what was, what was being reinvented here is oddly what was the subject of the FISA, uh, act in the first place. I, I mean, I think part of what, when I was finally piecing this together and like seeing where there were still gaps in the story, especially uh-huh. around the, the transit part and trying to report that out so it became a narrative, was recognizing that what happened in 1978 with the enactment of FISA was a lot more complicated than the sort of mythology of it. Yes. So, right? The mythology of it was the church committee discovered that the NSA and FBI were out of control, and they passed FISA the end. And, you know, everyone lived happily ever after. And, in fact, the reason that statute is so incomprehensible is is so, you know, they, non-obviously they, written. They were saving a bunch of programs they, were, they didn't want to talk they, about. They were carving out the ability to go down into the international seabed and tap cables in the middle. They were carving out the ability to get between uh, satellites uh, in the ground. And, and you know, it just it, it kind of, sort of uh, ended warrantless wiretapping with one in U.S. soil, but only to, uh, with these techniques and that, not those techniques. And everyone who was involved in that, whether they were a reformer or they were the security state that was negotiating and compromising, had an incentive to sort of say, oh, yes, warrants are required now because of FISA anyway. You know, let's move on. And that's not what happened. And then when technology changes in the 80s, that's when these pressures start to build that blow up after 9-11. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the FISA statute was written to allow them to continue to do everything that they really wanted to do, and they didn't expect to have a lot of FISA orders. And that's totally transformed. Uh, but I, 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 I would observe this. Everybody will tell you, and I, uh, that section 702, which is, um, 
warrantless or more or less warrantless say, uh, targeting uh, of communications that go to and from the U.S. Uh, is one of our most effective anti-terrorism surveillance programs. Uh, and it only exists, really, as you say, uh, because of that one remarkable leap by the, uh, the folks in 2001 when they said, we're going to just do it. And they did it, and they found enormously valuable stuff. Uh, and... Unlike the metadata programs. Yeah. Yeah, unlike the metadata programs, which uh, were designed to stop an attack that uh, uh, we stopped by eliminating the safe haven uh, a, a, and didn't really need that uh, really probably until now. Um, a, but they wouldn't have been able to sell that in the abstract. And they, if they had sold it in the abstract and ha- after a long debate – there would have been much less value to it because everybody would have said, well, here's what they said they're going to uh, to do. Let's never use those I, I mean, maybe. Services. I, you're, you're, okay, so you're making the point that by acting, let's say, arguably lawlessly or whatever the word is, uh, unilaterally. Yeah, or like, uh, a, like a commander-in-chief. They put in place programs that they wouldn't have otherwise happened, and it turns out those programs are good, and therefore Congress retroactively more or less ratifies them. Over and over again. Um and that's an interesting dynamic that goes into the place of this refusal to remove a tool. On the other hand, uh, the, sort of the counterexample that is parallel, it would be the creation of military commissions, right? Obama, uh, Bush creates military commissions by fiat, and then even when the Supreme Court strikes them down, there's overwhelming pressure to sort of keep them. And so we still have military commissions today. Right. I think uh, even their most ardent supporters would have to admit they've been totally ineffective. Uh, I don't know if you agree I'm, with that. I'm, 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 not, I'm, not, the best, I'm not a deep student of the Well, the we, we have yet to have a trial over 9-11, let's right. put it that way. And, you know, despite the best efforts of people like General Martins who are trying to make it work, it's just really, really hard and turns out maybe not to uh, be a, uh, the best thing, but also hard to remove a tool once it's there. I mean, uh, even, you know, getting back to the book for a second, one of the vignettes I tell is about how Obama, as a senator, was originally going to say, I'm against military commissions. And Jay Johnson, his now DHS secretary, then says, you're going to be president. You need to leave yourself flexibility. And so he ends up saying he's against the Military Commissions Act of 2006, and that allows his left-wing supporters to think he's against tribunals when he's Generally. left it, when he's allowed himself room to be for military commi- commissions uh, under a different law. So uh, to, just to, to, to take you back to the uh, the intercept stuff, which yes. I think is 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 the stuff that that I, uh, most people who listen to this are are interested in. Yeah, you've got this kind of coup de main uh, by the uh, non-lawyers. Uh, oh, but line. let me say one other thing. Yeah. Your, your your assumption is that something a something wouldn't have passed if they had asked for it. In the the month after 9/11, when they couldn't have just gotten another section added to the Patriot Act, which was going to pass overwhelmingly. Oh, no, I, I, I think I completely uh, d- disagree with you. Uh, if you think you could have gotten that through, I remember that I was part of the uh, negotiating process, uh, uh, you know, distantly, but still part of it. And you were probably not following it then, but at the time. Uh, Every single clause had to be negotiated with Leahy staff, uh, and several things that uh, now, in retrospect, are not that big a deal uh, were taken out because they were viewed as too far beyond the pale. And everybody who had been in the Clinton administration, uh, um, including me, were asked about them, and we said, oh, that seems kind of aggressive. Uh, so there was by no means a blank check. That's 
that's the mythology of the left. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I will, uh, I'll just, I'll just, I'm issue spotting that you're yeah. assuming that I'm not, I won't, right. I won't take issue with what you're saying now, but I'll also don't accept what you're saying yes, yep. either. The, and the other thing you're, you're, it was built into your comment was if the public had known about it because it had to be openly debated as part of a statute, it would have been less effective. And you know, since 2007 with the Protect America Act and the FISA Amendments Act, then that this has been known as a mechanism. And by all accounts, indeed, they still tend to get yeah. quite a lot of useful intel out of it. So I think that is an overstated premise. Yeah, although less since uh, people have started reading Snowden and taking his advice about uh, which services you shouldn't use. Uh, um, uh, you just had to get your Snowden shot in there. I did. I did. Uh, so, but we've got this coup de main, and it lasts a surprisingly, in, in retrospect, short time. Uh, the guys who said, yes, sir, you're the commander in chief, we'll do it, uh, are, you know, moving on, at least the lawyers, within three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jack Goldsmith comes in and says, this is all screwed up. We can't just say we're not going to obey the statute, right? And starts an effort of sort of saying, how much of this can I save and how? Uh, and that's what produces the confrontation at the hospital, uh, uh, because he had said, I can save some of it, but not all of it. And uh, everybody says, okay, we'll fight over the not all. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, uh, with threats of uh, uh, resignation and the like, they prevail and everybody agrees there ought to be a better, maybe not a perfect, but a better legal uh, regime for all of this. And they set about the process of doing that and they do it, if I remember right, first with the email program where they're getting emails coming in and out of the United States. E- email metadata. Metadata. Um, and well, well, you know, there's, there's a, yeah. there's, so we, we, the public find out about the hospital room. I, I mean, there was hints of it in, when the original New York Times stories, but it was sort of like, in passing, it's really Jim Comey's testimony, right, that where he tells the dramatic story right. of running up the stairs and, you know, Ashcroft raising himself from his sickbed to yep. denounce yep. Gonzalez and so forth. That, but they never said what it was about. And there was this sort How of... astonishing. It, it, such a dramatic story and, and what it was about is hidden from view for, for years. years. Yes. And, and, and officially still kind of... Parts of it are classified. Uh-huh. I've been fighting these FOIA lawsuits to get stuff that came out of that, and they continue to redact the legal things that, right. which, you know, but it was much more complicated than the mythology. The mythology was the warrantless, the, no one knew about the metadata programs right. then, right? So the warrantless wiretapping program, Goldsmith was against it, Comey was against it, because it violated civil liberties, and so they stood up and um, got it sort of at least somehow fixed. And there were two or three things that were the problem. One uh-huh. of them was that they were using stellar wind against terrorism threats generally, and Goldsmith wanted to root it in the authorization to use military force against al-Qaeda. So he basically said, I can go with the president can can override this law as commander-in-chief, but you got to be commander-in-chief in a war and a not congressionally just, just, authorized just generally. War. That's right. And so Hezbollah, sorry, mm-hmm. but al-Qaeda, yes. And that's when the original uh, legal analysis is done inside the executive branch about what, how do you draw the line with an associated force and not, which then becomes huge in terms of targeting in the Obama years. But it starts off as a surveillance issue in the Bush years. Uh, and then another issue is that he just can't find his way around the bulk, the collection of bulk internet metadata off of switches 
for very technical statutory reasons involving what counts as an installation of a pin register, it is so far afield from right. they thought civil liberties were being violated. So he 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 uh, justified the phone metadata program, which actually, ironically, has had the least legal problems right up until its being its demise of, of, of everything. Uh, uh, he said, "Well, it's." These are billing records, and the companies exist. are in, entitled to volunteer the billing records, at least in an emergency, and therefore you can you can make that program continue. But I, I, can't I think do that's it, for- it. There's still something a little bit in the shadows about what how that what the legal basis is for that between '04 and '06 when the FISA court starts issuing orders for it. I'm hoping that the at the end of these FOIA lawsuits we're bringing that. The government will disacquiesce and say, oh, it was this, this statute we were pointing to. For some reason, they want to keep it hidden. Uh, but yes. And, but the, the problem with they, the, the thing that led to, uh, the resignation threat above all was the, the Bush decided to keep going collecting metadata off of switches, specifically not the other two, when he had said it was just, you couldn't, he couldn't find a way to make it legal. So if you track the phone meta, the email metadata program through, it runs into it, it creates the hospital bed confrontation. Well, it's part of it. I think the White House didn't want to ratchet things back to Al Qaeda either. Could be. Okay. Uh, and then they, they take that to the FISA court first and say, well, really, this is a kind of a pen register. Uh, we're just getting metadata about communications and it's a, it's a modern internet uh, pen register, which is a perfectly plausible argument. And that works. But then the question is, well, why are you taking all of it? And they introduced for the first time this argument that uh, uh, they're entitled to take all of it because there's, they know there's some relevant data in there, and they're just going to hold it and only search for the relevant data when they have a reason to do That's it. That's right. So this is the origin of the redefining relevance to mean everything so long as you only look at things that are relevant, right. which then becomes more famous yes. two years later when it's expanded – well, when it's exposed – but the expansion two years after that to the phone metadata program. Now the but the the email metadata program it's it's a little bit contrary to your view that this stuff just hangs around and hangs around because it um, it lasts it comes a cropper if I remember two thousand eight two thousand nine where they suddenly discover they're over collecting they're not doing exactly what they told the court they they were doing probably because they didn't understand what exactly what was being pulled together uh and the court get the FISA court gets very angry and says well then we're going to shut your program down if i remember right uh, uh, yeah. and, and does shut it down for a year the executive branch at least lets the order lapse without asking for a new one while it's trying to get its act together and they come back in 2000 what 10 mid 2010 they get john bates to turn it back on and then at the end of 2011 the whole thing goes away again so it's like a snake bitten program I, uh, but it it was closed down by nsa and the administration um, me because they had discovered that they could get a lot of this stuff in other ways, but it, it certainly doesn't fit a narrative of once you, uh, start on a program, you can never end it. Well, what you just said is, refutes what you said one sentence later, right? They found, and this is what, this is a very recent, I mean, we, there was suggestion of this, and I quote anonymous people in my book saying this is what had happened just last week through a FOIA lawsuit, we got out the, some NSAIG reports about this program that confirmed officially, so they decided not to redact it, that uh, that is indeed what happened, that they found that they could get the same data that they needed and perform the same kind of contact chaining inquiries, primarily using 
uh, uh, data that had been swept up abroad or through transit authority under 12333 and through ingesting people's inboxes under well, the 702 so, program. But, but the point of that is that uh, they So, they so that's the thing. exception that proves the rule, right? They're able right. to turn it off only when they're not really turning it off or when they have created a functional equivalent. Oh, I, and they yeah. can tell themselves I, No, that. You're, 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 you're chopping logic here. Uh, they decide they, they had a controversial legal theory here uh, and they'd had problems administering the Especially program, the and, they deci- and they decided uh, we're going to stop this program and rely on alternative sources, uh, which may or may not be exactly uh, uh, the same, but uh, the the fact is they decided to end the program and to say, well, they, they could have gotten some of this data. No, they decided to end it precisely because... They had created a functional equivalent by changing the rules on 12333. Well, under, under much clearer and more straightforward legal authority. Or, or just lack of legal regulation whatsoever. No, legal authority is, they have a lot more legal authority outside the United States, but they have legal authority. That's, that's the president's commander in chief authority. Uh, but, uh, uh, they did end it. And I think, uh, I, now I see why it's so important to write these stories that say, uh, oh, well, they ended it, but they didn't really end it because they had, they just found some end around. The fact is they did decide this isn't worth the intrusion into uh, um, domestic legal authority questions that that it produces. I think it's not worth the the unending headaches of trying to comply with FISA court rules and oversight. And the, you can collect these seven fields of data, but oops, you're collecting this eighth, and now you have to shut the whole thing down. And countless man hours are spent trying to fix it. And meanwhile, hey, wait a minute. If we just change this internal procedure on being allowed to use Americans' data that has been swept up abroad under 12333, we can still do the same thing, or and we can tell the FISA court or something close, and tell the FISA court, thank you, we don't need you anymore. Well, we don't need to. Co- at the end of the day, the the objection to the 215 program was you're collecting it, not that you are going in and getting it. From people who have it, but you you shouldn't collect it. And I've now always, they've ended yeah. the collection. I mean, I've always you probably share. I, I'm a little bit. I've always thought that the USA Freedom solution, quote unquote, to the you know quote unquote problem of the 215 program, is a little bit weird because it's almost like an aesthetic difference. The data is being held here. The data is being held there. Either way, the government has systematic access to that data. So what is the, you know, but people seem to be more reassured against potential abuse. So, okay. Yeah, and it's a, it's a lawyer's solution. The, the lawyers said it can't possibly, you can't collect it without a Fourth Amendment violation. Uh, and people said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll leave it where it is, and then we'll get it uh, when we have the suspicion. Uh, it's a very lawyerly solution, and, and, and I don't mean that complimentarily. Uh, it, 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 uh, is that your self-loathing coming yeah, out? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, well, I, I fall into a large class, and I loathe the class. I, or at least I see their flaws pretty clearly, and this this is a, a flawed and lawyerly approach. Uh, I don't want to take well, – this is, this is uh, probably the point at which we have to end. I should say for the listeners, this is – we've covered – Eight percent of the book, uh, if that. Uh, it is just a magnificent tour of issues that people who listen to this uh, uh, podcast will care about. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, you really should be congratulated. God knows how you did it, because writing clearly about these issues requires stopping and walking back and 
separating all kinds of legal gibberish from the reality and then finding a way to, to, to make clear what the, uh, uh, the stakes are. Uh, it was, it's brilliantly done. Uh, you know, it is No, no, you can stop there. You can I, stop there. That's it. Yes, full we'll stop. It's, it's great it's, podcast. It's a Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, and I, uh, I heard a butt coming right. in. Uh, uh, you're right. Uh, uh, well, damn, you're a much better editor of me than of some of these chapters. <laughs> oh, you got it in anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, I, thank you, Charlie. I, uh, I, I loved reading it and I love talking to you. It's always a pleasure. Uh, and, uh, ben with us, you should f- hear those uh, footsteps. Uh, uh, Michael Vadis, uh, Jason Weinstein, thank you also for participating. Uh, uh, I do want to say again to our listeners, uh, we encourage you to go to uh, the iTunes uh, podcast section. Find this uh, uh, podcast under Steptoe Cyber Law and give it a review and a good one too. At least as uh, you know, Charlie. Now you have an obligation to give it a review. Five as stars, good as I gave you. Maybe you give it four and a half, just as uh, yeah. an appropriate uh, recognition of my criticisms, which were quite minor. I uh, <laughs> and as always, the Steptoe Cyber Law podcast is open to feedback. Send it uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you want to leave a message, try two zero two eight six two five seven eight five. Uh, uh, this has been episode 90 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by Jay Healy of the Atlantic Council, uh, and we hope you'll join us then as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 